0: Well, we do want to <laughs> we do want to thank you for being here this morning as we begin our 70-day journey together. Uh, those who uh, may be watching with the live stream, if you need one of the booklets, you're welcome to pick one up at the office tomorrow or sometime this week. Or if you'll notify the office, we'll mail it out to you. We realize that many people are still dealing with COVID issues. Matter of fact, if you go back to last October at our staff retreat, uh, we try to have a yearly staff retreat where we get together and pray and just kind of ask God what does he want for our church for the next year. Um, We put all this together back then, thinking COVID would be something in the past, and it would be something that would refocus us together as we journey together as a church to love God, reach the world, uh, and connect with others. That's backwards, but anyway, you know what I mean, and it's that whole idea of us coming together around what we feel that God has called us to do and to fulfill as a church, and so I believe God is really going to use this. I I do want to thank all those who uh, had something to do with this. This really turned out nice. I was shocked that we were capable of doing something like this, to be honest with you, Uh, but it really came together, and I want to thank all those who participated and all those who put that together. Well, today, as we already said, Rooted. That's our sermon series for the next 10 weeks, and we're going to be looking at 70 days of growing deeper. Now, I think many of you know, and Jonathan reminded us earlier, that we exist as a church to love God, connect with others, and reach the world by creating a culture where Jesus is our lead story, Scripture and prayer prime, and thirdly, that worship is a lifestyle. Part of our cultural value as it relates to worship sounds like this. Worship is more than a song or a lyric. It's more than what we do with our mouths. It's what we do with our hearts, hands, and heads as well. Hands, excuse me. When we gather, the intention of our worship is to sing his praises, celebrate what he is doing, hear and respond to his word, and give to his compassions. However, worship is not just an hour. We gather each week. Worship is a lifestyle in which the songs we are singing and the message we are hearing on Sunday echoes throughout the week. Worship is magnifying Jesus everywhere and all the time. Let me just say this this morning. If this is the only time you acknowledge God in your life is when you show up here on Sunday mornings. If this is the only time that you sing his praises and acknowledge him for who he truly is, you're totally missing out on the life he intends for you. He wants us to be a part of your life and everything that we do and everything that we say. And that's pretty much what we're going to talk about this morning. So week one, we're looking at loving God. We're looking at corporate worship. Look at the introduction on your outline. Worship is literally expressing highest value to God through our lives in response to who he is and his love for us. We're going to look closely at that love this morning. So go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. In Romans, what you have here in chapters 5 through 8 is the heart of the gospel. And that's where we're going this morning. The very first thing we're going to look at as we launch into our 10-week study is we're going to look at the whole idea of salvation. What is salvation? What did God do when he gave us the ability to be saved? When he gave us the ability to be accepted by God, what was he up to? And then really, when we begin to look into this this morning, you're going to see that we love God, we worship God, and the only reason we do that is because he first loved us. He initiated the relationship with us. He's the one that initiated it. He's the one that brought it all together. And so our response to why he is given to us in that salvation is our worship. In Romans chapter five, you look at the second part of verse five, the Bible says the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The phrase here poured out literally means lavishly. Meaning God lavishly gives his love to us. And therefore, our response to that lavish love is our worship to him. Placing value to him. Acknowledging he is the highest of value when it comes to our lives. So look on your outline. Receiving God's love for us, that's really just salvation. That salvation, that whole love, that whole relationship of love begins at the point of salvation. God's love for us can only truly be seen from the backdrop, and look on your outline, of our condition of hopelessness. Before we came to know Jesus Christ, the Bible describes us as hopeless. We are lost in our sins, we are captivated by sin. There was all these things were working against us, and we see that. So if you look at Romans chapter five, look at verse one, he says, therefore. Therefore, it's referring to something previously said. And if you go back and you study the beginning of this whole letter, you'll see in chapters one through four, that Paul is giving us a picture of ourselves and it is a picture of hopelessness. He says therefore in the in midst of our hopelessness we have been justified by faith. How did it come about or what what comes with that? We now have peace with God Through whom? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can address the hopelessness that's in our lives. Now, when he says we have peace, it's not talking about the attitude of peace or the presence of peace. It literally means that we're not at war any longer. Now, think about that. We're not at war any longer. The Bible says before we came to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we identified more or we identified with the enemy of God. That's Satan. Satan. All this language out there in our world today is who do you identify with? How do you identify as? Or whatever. It's really nothing more. It's really who do you identify with? And before we came to know him, we identified with the enemy according to the scripture. I'm not making this up. I'm not trying to judge you when I say that. The Bible says that very clearly. But because of salvation... Now we identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word justify is key to salvation. It literally means to be declared or made right when it comes to the idea of something that is wrong. It implies that the wrong is totally, in this sense, totally incapable of making itself right. So, if you were to say, okay, describe me before I came to know Jesus, you were in wrong. (laughs) You were wrong. And you are totally incapable of doing anything about it. That's what this is saying. But now something has happened upon you. Upon you. And But before we get into that idea, what did we truly look like? Well, look on your outline. First of all, we were without strength. Look at verse 6 again. It says, for when we were still without strength. Now think about this. It literally means totally powerless totally powerless to do anything about our situation. That's where we were before we came to salvation, without strength. Secondly, we were ungodly. Look at verse 6 again. For we were still without strength, but in due time Christ died for the ungodly. We are described before salvation as being ungodly. It literally brings the idea that we were undeserving. It literally means that we were, in the sense that God loves, we were unlovable in our sin. We were unlovable in our sin. But God didn't focus necessarily on the sin. He dealt with the sin, but he loved us. But we were identified in our sin. That's what we were known as. Sinner, ungodly. And that's where we were before salvation come upon us. Next, thirdly, we were sinners. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners. Again, not capable of reaching God's standard. There was nothing we could do to make ourselves acceptable before him. It's the idea the God who hates sin loves the sinner. And that's what he did. He reached beyond our sin. Jesus took upon our sin. He reached beyond that to us, to where we were. He came to our rescue, is literally what the gospel is all about. He's come to our rescue. Here's another description of who we were before salvation. We were objects of God's wrath, Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be on the other end of God's wrath. I don't want to have any part of that. I mean, that's, that's some heavy stuff when you think about it. But when you look at Romans 9, look at what it says. Much more than, I mean, think about what Paul's doing. Paul is literally talking about what we were before salvation, before we came to know Christ, and he's getting excited about it. And you say, well, how do you know he's getting excited about it? Look at that phrase in verse 9 but much more. He's basically saying it doesn't end there. It gets better. It gets better. It's astounding what he's done, basically. That's what he's saying here. Having now been justified by his blood, that was a sacrifice, the atonement for our sin, we shall, as a result, be saved from the wrath through him, through Jesus. The wrath of God will not touch us. We are not appointed to God's wrath any longer. Before we came to know him, we were. Now, no longer. Sinners, apart from Christ, literally think about this. Those who do not know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, listen, are in a direct line of God's wrath. That's one reason why we should be more evangelistic. That's one reason why we need to tell people about the love of God. While we don't need to allow people to stay in their hopelessness, we need to communicate the, the gospel message that there is something beyond the hopelessness in which we live. And it comes by way of salvation. Next, we were God's enemy. Now, some of you, I've said this before. I guarantee you, before we came to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we didn't say, you know something? Before I came to know him, I was his enemy. We didn't think in that way. But you know what, how the Bible describes us? We were his enemy. Everything we identified with because of our sin, because we were born in sin, because we identified with sin, because we actually did sin, we identified in those things. Christ pulled off the, the whole thing in which he came to take care of that issue. And, but before that, look at verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were enemies. But here's the, good, here's the good news of the salvation of the gospel. We went from being enemy to friend, and it doesn't end there, to child of God. I want you to think about that. How does someone go from being an enemy to a friend to literally part of the family? That's what he's offering with his salvation. That's what he's bringing to the table when he talks about his love for us. Next, receiving Christ's love for us. That's the salvation. But it's seen in a great contrast. I want you to think about this. There's no greater contrast than between light and darkness. Would you agree with that? There's no greater contrast anywhere in the world than between light and darkness. But there is an idea when you move beyond something you can see from purity and, and, and the whole idea of sin. And so if you were to say, okay, light and darkness, boy, that is a great uh, contrast. Well, guess what? Sin and purity are equally or even greater in contrast. I want you to think about that. How many of you ever been to a jewelry store? And you go and, and you go see all the goods and everything. Most of the time, if you look closely, you'll see that the diamonds are placed against a backdrop that is very dark. How many of you ever noticed that? Like black velvet, maybe navy velvet. Now, now the, the point there is to is to display the brilliance of the diamond that's displayed there. Here in Romans chapter 5, the brilliance of salvation or God's love is displayed behind, and what's behind it is our sin, the darkness of our sin, the hopelessness that we find ourselves in. And so, when you have that there, and that's what he's doing here in Romans chapter 5, and then you display God's grace, his love, his salvation, you see the brilliance of that love. You see the brilliance of that salvation, the brilliance of what he's done in and through our lives. And that's the reason Paul gets so excited here much more than. And, oh, man, you haven't seen anything yet. That's the language that he's using here. He's excited about the salvation that God brings. So look on your outline. Not only do we see in these verses our condition of hopelessness, but his demonstration of love. And the first thing we see there is he died for us. He gave it all. In Romans chapter 5, again, look at verse 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. Maybe there are those who are willing to to die for others. Maybe a good man. But look at what he's done. This Christ, this Jesus, he died for the unlovable. (laughs) He, He died for his enemies. He died for those who were appointed to God's wrath. He did all that on our behalf verse 8 but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we are still sinners in that hopelessness beyond hopelessness Christ died for us next we see his demonstration of love he justifies us it's literally the idea and I've shared this many times he made us acceptable to God look at verse 9 much more than again Paul's getting excited it gets better having now been justified by his blood. Again, what's the language here? We were totally powerless to please God. Now, here's why Christianity stands alone. Every other religion in the world says that there's something within us that we can make ourselves acceptable before God. Christianity says there's nothing that you can do to make yourself acceptable before God. The only thing that we can even come close to doing is is accepting what Christ has done on our behalf. You look at Islam, you look at even Judaism, you look at all these other faiths, these other religions that are out there, and all of them say, yes, there is something deep within you that if you connect it the right way, you do enough stuff, you attend this, you say this, it will somehow get you to the point that you can appease God. But you can't. The book of Romans, chapters 1 through 4, says it's absolutely impossible. But then by the time you get to chapter 5, it says, but God, but he did this. Every other faith says there's something in us that can appease God. But in Christianity, there's nothing we can do except for cling to the provision of Jesus Christ. That's what sets it apart. That's what makes it different than all the others. Next, he not only justifies us, but he saved us. That's the language that we use. Look at verse 9 again. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We shall be saved. Next, his demonstration of love. He reconciled us. Look at verse 10. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved, how? By doing good works. By attending church every Sunday morning. By saying certain things and doing different things and doing, no, none of that's written here. What does it say? By his life. What was his life all about? His life, listen, was to be the perfect sacrifice for us. It's speaking of Jesus. Jesus. He was the perfect sacrifice. Our sin needed a sacrifice. Our sin in the economy of God, when you look at what he's after, what he's there, something must die on behalf of sin. That's the reason you have the whole sacrificial system in the Old Covenant. Now Jesus is the epitome of that. He has met the standard. He lived perfection. He is the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And now, as a result of that, we've been reconciled to God, not because we got something right, necessarily, but because we discovered what was available through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, what happened? What was wrong that has been made right? What has been reconciled? Well, as we said last week, here's what was wrong. We were born with a condition. How many of you knew, know that every one of us were born with some type of condition? We were. Every one of us were. Thank you. Appreciate you guys raising your hand. Yeah. But but it's that whole idea. We were. As I said last week, our flesh was self-serving. Our bodies were prone to unhealthy appetites. Our heart was capable of much pride. Our will was rebellious. Our mind was susceptible to perversion and deception. Our conscience was dull, and our innocence was lost. Would you describe that as hopeless? That's where we were. But God, what has now been made right? At the moment we received Christ's love, something miraculous happened. Of course, we went from being an enemy to a friend to a child of God. Those are all good things. But there was something else that began to stir within us to counteract all the things I just read. At the moment we came to know him, we changed. At least our soul and spirit did. Our body still remains to be changed. Paul tells us about that later in Romans chapter 7. So we changed. There was something within us, motivation to overcome. Something was given. And then next, we became indwelt by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God now, listen, brings a contrast to what our impulses are, to what our flesh wants, to to, to our rebellious spirit that we find ourselves in. There's a contrast that's now been presented in our lives, and it comes by way of the Holy Spirit. He's the one bringing us to the reality of what salvation is all about. We no longer have to be in bondage to our sin. We no longer have to be a slave to our sin. Those things don't have to happen, but at the moment we receive Christ's love, we also become an object of God's love. Now, let me just tell you something. Uh, I guarantee you, if I did a little survey in here this morning, and I were to say, can you think of a time you did not know the story about God sending his son Jesus to this world to die for our sins? I guarantee you that many of us in this room have, have known that ever since we even had thoughts. I guarantee you. But here's the problem. And, and I, I, I deal with it, too. I was raised in a Christian home. I heard the word of God from the very beginning. I wouldn't say we've gotten over it. We just become very used to it. And we don't get excited about it the way we need to be getting excited about it. Paul can't hardly contain himself when he's writing about this stuff. I mean, look at Much more then. I mean, it gets even better. He says that several times. I mean, he's just writing. And he's pouring it down. He's getting more excited and more excited. But the problem with many of us is we've gotten over it. Where's the passion? Where's the idea that, wow, we're an object of God's love? It should blow our minds. I I want to just say this before I move to the next point. This morning, if you're sitting in this room and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I hope I presented the contrast well enough to show you where you are but also what God has provided for you through Jesus Christ to where you can be. My prayers this morning, you won't leave this place still the way you are. But you would pray and ask God to come and feel the complexities of your flesh and your heart and the deception that many of us are under, to realize the hopelessness that you are in right now, to realize there's so much more for for what he wants for you, so much more of what he's done for you. So much more that you can become not an enemy of God any longer, but a child of God. Listen, the object of his love, no longer the object of his wrath. So my prayer for you this morning is that you come to terms with that. And you accept the provision of Jesus for your life. It'll radically change your life. It'll radically do that. That's my heart's prayer for you this morning. Next, receiving Christ's love for us, we see the whole idea of salvation. And the Bible says in 1 John chapter 4 that we love because he first loved us. Again, it's the whole idea. Just like Romans, it's the whole idea. John comes along and says, let me reiterate this. Let me just tell you this. We believe this is written much later than Romans. Hey, listen, God initiated any kind of love you have towards God. He initiated that love. He brought it to you. You didn't start that process. He did. Therefore, listen, our love for him is a response to his love for us. That's all it is. So responding to God's love for us is worship. It's worship. His love is all about salvation. Our response to his love is our worship. I worship. That's a big deal. Think about it. There's several things as it relates to worship. Worship, look on your island. is sacrificing our worldly ambitions to God. I mean, you think about it. We just told you everything he's done for us. I've just told you the, the hopelessness that he, he, he brought us out of to a place of, of repentance, to a place of confession and freshness of life. And the Spirit of God now living in our life, we should be the most excited people in the world. When we come together, it should be the expression of love corporately. But it has to begin in our hearts Personally before it becomes that. So, what are we doing? Listen, responding to God's love, let me just say this, involves what I would call something a, a practical worship. What does that look like? Luke 9, look here on the screen. Then Jesus said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, if you want what I have for you, If you want, really, you could say everything that has just been described, because that's what his life was all about. If you want that, let him, let her deny himself herself. Deny himself or herself. And take up his cross, how? Daily. You say, what is this verse about? Listen, it is a verse about responding to the love of God. And how do you respond? It's a practical vision of worship. Take up his cross, how? Daily. Daily implies how the principle of this is lived out, and it's lived out practically, daily. And follow me is the idea of continual obedience. It's literally the idea of seeking God, seeking God on a daily basis so really when you think about it Luke 9 23 is the invitation to follow God and to worship him so these commands are not required listen before salvation is granted but is a response to what it should be after we receive the salvation he offers it's our worship so the highest calling of worship I believe, is practically lived out daily. So this verse requires living a life, as I say all the time, intentionally. Living intentionally with the proper focus, in light of what Christ has done on our behalf. Next, worship is also focusing our attention on God. In Matthew chapter 6, verse six, now he's talking about, this is a picture of personal worship but look at what he says, but you, when you pray, go into your room, okay? And when you have shut your door, pray to the Father who is in the secret place. Have you ever wondered, what's all this about? Listen, it's bringing yourself to a place of personal worship. It's bringing you to a place where God is essential to your focus. That you can lay aside everything else out there in the world and you can come to that place where God, you literally can see yourself in the presence of God. That's the secret place. And he says this, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Some people say, oh, going to get more money, get that car I always wanted. Man, if I just focus. No, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about he, he, the reality of everything. Let me tell you what this means. The reality of everything he provides, we begin to see our lives in, in that reality. That's the reason when storms come in our life, circumstances come in life, all these different things come to our life. When we go to Him in secret, when we bring our personal worship before Him, responding to His love, knowing He loves us, He brought us from a position of helplessness and hopelessness to a place in which He's provided for us. And now we see the big picture, and it brings our worship, our awe. So, how do you focus your attention on God in worship? These, this verse says, basically, you got to quiet your life. I don't think there's ever been a time in all of human history where it's been more difficult to quiet our lives. Am I, do you think, you think I'm correct in that? Can you, can you see the caveman, or not the caveman, but <laughs> go way back when, when we had nothing, no technology, and it's like, what would that be like? How many of you want to go back to that time? We, we've been binge-watching Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> Actually, my wife has. Occasionally, I'll pop in. but and, and we, I mean, I just love that feeling they had. Don't, don't, how many of you cry when you see the show? I mean, I know there's bad acting and all that stuff, but, but man, there's just something there that just pulls at you where you long for those days once again, don't you? Some of you are like, no, I don't want to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and milk a cow and all that stuff. But, but there's something appealing about that. There's something out there. Quiet your life. Leave the clutter of life outside the door. Next, worship expressing our affection to God. In Mark chapter 12, it's also said in Matthew and Luke, uh, what we're getting ready to read goes all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's actually a God instructing parents that generations may worship God. And here's what it says. Jesus answered, they asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, well, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. It's as simple as that, basically. But that's where it is. It's a declaration to the generations to come. That we are to love God, how? On Sunday morning at 9.30 or 11, whichever one you choose. No. With everything we have, with everything we have, the impulses of our heart, the hardness of maybe of the mind, just softening in such a way God, just, you just see it. So let's look at this. You are to love God, number one, with all your heart. as a pure love. A love that is not hypocritical, but is sincere. A love that is not defiled, but is pure and innocent. Max Lucado has written this, and I love these words. We too easily open the door of our heart. How many of you agree with that, that we do that? We too easily open the door of our heart, okay? Anger shows up, and we open and we open the door. Revenge needs a place to stay. We have a him pull up a chair pity wants to have a party we we show him the kitchen lust rings the bell and we change the bed sheets with everything attacking our heart and fighting to get in jesus stands at the door and knocks but understand this he only wants in if he can have your heart to himself to himself god only responds to a pure sincere surrendered heart So if you're to say, okay, all right, uh, uh, I understand. I'm responding to God's love. That's my worship. I'm responding to that. What does does it look like in heart-related matters? It's, It's the whole idea that he has my heart. It's a pure, sincere, genuine love. Next, you're to love God with all your soul. It's a passionate love, a passionate love. God doesn't want your duty. He wants your desire. I remember, um, how many of you when you, um, (laughs) how many of you got married young? Anybody? Okay. How many of you look back at uh, when when that love began to blossom? You remember all that? It was kind of a complicated time, wasn't it? Uh, for some of us, it was a—we we, kind of got stupid in the process. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I mean, we were willing to do anything to express. Some of you looking stupid. But well, in my case, we got kind of stupid at times. But I remember um, Tina and I—we got married very young. You know our testimony. And we uh, were looking—I was looking at some old pictures, and uh, of course she looked really good on her wedding day. And I mean, you, just, you know, woman doesn't look good on a wedding day. There ain't much hope. But anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, let's move on. (laughs) I caught a couple of you going, mmm. I digress. Anyway, uh, I went back and looked at some pictures, and we're on our honeymoon. How many of you went to Myrtle Beach on your honeymoon? Raise your hand, anybody? Anybody? I'm the only one that went, oh, okay, all right. Yeah, Myrtle Beach. And the only thing we knew to do was play jungle golf. You remember? Just putt-putt, that kind of thing. So I look at these pictures. We're out there. She's, you know, and I'm, you know, it's just. (sighs) We got these shirts, Myrtle Beach, 1981 or 80-whatever, 80. 81. Mine said, Tina's. Her said, Brian's. Kind of a goofy love, wouldn't you agree? But man, there was, there was passion there. There was desire. There was, there was something about that relationship. You say, fast forward 40 years, would you ever wear a shirt like that? Absolutely not. (laughs) So you're saying the passion's gone. Well, it's different. Right? How how many of you in your marriage, you've gone from passion and you know what all that tells, to where we're just kind of comfortable with one another now. We're like an old pair of shoes, you know. It's just comfortable now. Some of you like, Some of you are like, "It comes to that?" <laughs> Never really. I mean, you think about it. relationship changes. There's something about it, but, but there, there still should be the passion. There should still be the demonstration of that love that that person has for you. And God is saying the same thing, "I don't want your duty. I want your desire." That's what true worship is. He doesn't want ritual, religion, or rules, or regulation. He wants a passionate relationship. God wants to be loved with our emotions, our feelings, our core being. He wants to be the object of our desire and our affections, a passionate love that acts and responds. Jesus, in the book of Revelation, is telling the church at Ephesus that they lost their first love. They lost their passion for him. It was, it, it's obvious that it meant to imply that it was once there. That was a real thing. But something slipped in. Something happened. And they got away from that passion. And they were probably, I, I would think, that the church was still probably doing things. They were probably loving God, reaching the world, and, and connecting with others. Maybe they had all that. But there was something that was missing he said, you lost your first love. You lost that passion you once had. It used to be that everything that you did was directed towards me as a response to the love that I brought you. But now you're just kind of doing it. You figured out how to do it and get a little successful at it. and You're still fulfilling some things. But what we had is not where it is today. How do you say you get that back? He said, remember, go back to that day. Go back to that day. You remember? You got over it. You remember? Repent. Recognize that the place I've asked you to hold for me, you didn't do. Return to that first love. Do the first works. When you come together Sing your praises to me. Give it to me. My question to you is, do you have a passionate love for God this morning? Next, he tells us to love God with all our mind. That's a perceptive love. Christianity is a faith that is reasonable and rational. Don't be afraid to have some doubts and ask questions. Your quest for the answers can actually deepen your faith. God wants you to love him by growing in wisdom and knowledge in him. Understanding him. The complexities of who he is. Next, lastly. We are to love God with all your strength. It's a practical love. 1 John chapter 3 Dear children, let us not only love, that could be our worship, with words or tongue, but also with actions. He wants more than your words of praise. He wants your heart. He wants the whole being of who you are. He wants it demonstrated. It's a practical love. Next. Responding to God's love for us as our worship also involves worshiping. Worship is using our abilities for God. True worship invades literally every part of our life. uh, Colossians 3.23, Paul also said this, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. As unto the Lord and not just for the paycheck. Well, I wouldn't be there if there wasn't a paycheck. <laughs> Still as not to the Lord. Application. We were talking about this as we were preparing this sermon series, and I think it actually came up when we were putting together what you're going to be discussing in your connect group if you haven't already done that. Do you realize that we've all been designed in such a way that our DNA has the idea of wanting to worship something? Did you, did you know that? there's something within us that wants to worship something it's been placed there i think by god but the intention of where that should be directed is back to him but what happened the flesh wants what the flesh wants the will is 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 rebellious the mind can be easily deceived and it's pointed somewhere else. But we've all been wired some way to to have a desire to worship something. So look on the outline. What are you worshiping? It is whatever you're giving your greatest ambitions to, whatever you're giving your greatest attention to, whatever you're giving your greatest affection to, and whatever you're giving your greatest abilities to. That is what you're worshiping. Conclusion. Worship, simplest form is magnifying jesus which literally means making him large in your life i want to close with these thoughts our personal worship is intended to become corporate worship what does that mean if you haven't already done this in your connect group it's going to happen in just a moment hopefully but hebrews chapter 10 The Bible says, let us consider one another. The word, let us consider one another, it literally means let's come to a place of observation. Let's get together and let's bring observation. The purpose, in order to stir up love and good works. We're here to to help that spark, that passion towards God. to, to, To bring the worship in such a way. The command is, he's basically saying, this is for your own good, is to not forsake the assemblings of yourself together. You need this. I need this. You say, of course you do. You get paid by us. No, I need this. So here it is corporate worship. What is it? We long for it before we gather. There's a personal worship that's already taken place in our lives, and we long to come and not necessarily put it on display. That's not really what it's all about. But come together with other believers. We all bring our personal worship. It's literally the idea that we bring the worship. So let me ask you a question this morning. Did you bring the worship this morning? Or did you come to a room with other people and there was drums and there was guitars and there was a keyboard and there were great people with great voices in front of you. Was it a little more than just a little entertainment with a maybe I need to do more kind of thing? Or did you bring what he already started in your heart this week to come together with other believers and now we're celebrating what he's done? Corporate worship, we bring it when we come together. We long for it before we come together. We bring it when we come together. We miss it when we cannot gather. We miss it. There's something wrong when we don't have it. And then lastly, when we worship corporately, we are celebrating together what God has done on our behalf. We are serving together, using our gifts and service to him. That's worship also. We are giving together to extend his heart and compassions to others. We're celebrating, we're serving, we're giving all because, listen, it is our response to his love. That is our worship. And so when I stand in this room with you and I look across the way and I see you and It doesn't matter if your hands are raised. If one hand's raised or you're sitting there just, man, just in all of God, we are encouraging one another to keep it up. And when I look at you and I see you express your worship and love God in such a way, it should encourage all of us to continue together to love him as he intends for us to love him, but also to love him because it is due him. It is due him. Would you stand to your feet, please? Father, we just come to you right now. And Lord, I just love the, I just love this place. Father, I, I personally have been in this play, in this, on this campus for 31 years, coming together to worship you. Others it's been longer, others it's been a lot shorter. But Father, we're all coming here desiring the same thing, to magnify your name, to lift up your name, to to bring a love that's not hypocritical, to bring a love that's genuine, that's there, that with all our hearts we just want to sing out to you. But it's more than just the singing. It's giving. It's serving. It's bringing it all. Father, I pray for the heart that's here this morning. Maybe they've never accepted your provision of salvation through Jesus Christ, and maybe they're here and they have more questions than answers right now. I pray that they'll see me before they leave here today. Email me sometime this week. Father, I just pray they understand how vital it is that they come to know you as their Lord and Savior, Father. Lord, I do pray for those who have been Christians for a long time, and I've known about you from my early thoughts. And at times, I think I lose sight of the passion that should be there in my worship as I serve you, as I give to your causes. Father, I think many of us in this room can identify with that. But Father, help us to return to that first love. And when we do, we, that we come together and corporately worship you, stirring on that passion in one another. Lord, we thank you for the ability to come and love on you see you as you truly are. In Jesus' name, amen.